I've said it before, uh, and I will say it again at this point. You guys are so fortunate to have the leadership that you have here at this church. And, um, and I personally am so thankful to God for all of, all of the church staff. And I'm, I'm just humbled by the friendship that I have with the Hendren family. It just means so much to me. So it's, 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 it's good to be here and watch you. I mean, you can watch us have a good time. It's kind of what it's down to. We're, we're delighted to be here, and, we're, and I'm glad you're here. This morning, we talked about Lazarus, and we got him resurrected. Um, and, and so tonight, we're going to talk about another resurrection that's, that's even more astounding, really, um, as we consider hope uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. You know, it's just amazing that Mary and Martha, uh, whose brother was sick, uh, called on Jesus. I mean... The, they knew that if anybody could fix it, you know, he could fix it. And here in the world in which we live, we're, we're looking for fixing. You know, in Texas, if you're about to do something, they say, we're fixing to go to the store. And I'm not sure how that got started because, you know, the store does not re- need repairing probably. But they will say, I'm fixing to go to the store. I'm, I'm, I'm fixing to do this. And it's, it's so common like y'all is nowadays. That used to be completely confined to mostly the southern states. But you hear people on, on television do it all the time, and they're not. They're from, they're from like Indiana or something. And they're all saying, y'all, it just kind of got adopted by uh, the country, you know, because we know what it means. So, so is fixing. Well, we need fixing in this country, certainly in this world. And, and that starts with hope, uh, because as I said this morning, it, sometimes it's all we've got. You know, we, you know we, we need food, and we need water, and we need a lot of things, but we need hope. I just don't know how you can get by without it. Um, when our daughter was diagnosed with stage 4 kidney cancer, uh, now uh, over four years ago, and they brought her in. Uh, because she just was feeling bad. She had a pain in her back, and she went to really a clinic. The clinic took a CAT scan, and they, uh, it was like 6 o'clock in the morning because she was feeling bad, and, and my wife picked her up and took her to the clinic, and I get a phone call at 6.30 saying, come down here immediately, and I said, what? And she says, just, just come on. So I got in the car and raced down to the clinic. And the next thing you know, an ambulance is pulling up. And from the clinic where we live in Pasadena, it's probably 30 miles to the Houston Medical Complex. If you know about that, it's the largest medical complex in the world. It's just hospital after hospital. Baylor, Methodist, um, Children's Hospital. Um, I mean, they're just all lined up in a row. Uh, St. Luke's, I mean, thousands and thousands of beds. And suddenly we're pulling into Methodist Hospital, and uh, which is one of the best in the world, frankly. And they're telling us that she has cancer, and they got to remove this. And that the guy who, who's the most skilled person in the world who can remove it, is uh, he's he's backed up three and a half weeks. 
before he can do it. Well, we were obviously praying from the beginning that God would fix it. And so somehow somebody, I think I know who it was, wangled an appointment with us and that guy like the next day just to see, just to consult, not, not to do the surgery. So uh, we went there for that, praying all the way that somehow he would find it in his schedule, not to knock somebody else out of the way, but to do this surgery. And uh, he came in the room. He was very perfunctory, uh, very businesslike. I mean, he didn't know us from Adam, and he examined her, and he went out and looked at some, some test results or something. He, he came back in the room while we're saying, you know, this, oh, gee, if we could just, God help us. And he came back in the room and he said, uh, can you be here at 6 o'clock in the morning, the next day? And we said, yes. He said, uh, we'll do the surgery then. They did and removed a very large kidney that was not, and some lymph nodes. And that began uh, Nicole's odyssey. She needed uh, fixing. Uh, she needed repair. Now, four years later, she, her test results indicate that she's, she's cancer-free at this stage. And uh, it's a miracle. There's no other explanation for it. God is still in the miracle business. So we see immediate things like that in the world, and we know we need help. <laughs> we need hope. But we need hope eternally. Because we know this doesn't last. Even maybe if the cancer is cured, there's still a date, a destiny for her. You know, life is really between, you know, you, you go out to a cemetery. It's the difference between the beta, date of birth and the, the date of death. And there's a, usually a hyphen in the middle. That hyphen is our life. And it's, it, it passes quickly. I mean, it, wasn't it yesterday that you were in high school? I mean... Wasn't it, wasn't it, I mean, I went to my 50th anniversary of high school uh, the other day, reunion. God, those people were old. I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable. I thought I was in the wrong meeting. And, uh, I, you know, it, I was reminded that I was the same age as they are. And uh, I was hoping I was better preserved somehow. But, you know, it just passes so quickly. Even I. Uh, we're married f uh, a little over 48 years ago, and I remember that night like it was yesterday. So it just it passes quickly, which means that we know we don't get to stay here. This is just a temporary uh, location, and these are temporary containers that we're walking around in because they wear out. They wear out. Well, will we have more? Is there another place? Is there another life? What can we reasonably expect after this? Well, I want to talk about hope later. We talked this morning about Lazarus, and, and there's a point in there where Mary and Martha are kind of semi-rebuking Jesus for not showing up earlier. Like, where have you been? And basically, they couch it by saying, if you had just been here earlier, then this wouldn't have happened. You could have cured him, and now he's dead. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And, of course, they mistake that for what they know as devout Jews for a resurrection at some point in the future. You know, this is, people weren't called Christians at this point. Jesus was just here. 
And he hadn't been here that long. And he hadn't started his ministry long before this. And it was just three years, three and a half years. Jesus said to her when she said, I I know uh, that he will rise again at the resurrection. Talking about her brother. And Jesus said to her those familiar verses that, as I said this morning, we often say at funerals, wait a minute, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love this because he, he doesn't just make the statement, and it's an incredibly definitive statement. He asks if you get it. Do you believe it? I'm asking you. You don't have to answer verbally, but you will have to answer someday. Do you believe this? That Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he has the ability to save you from the guttermost to the uttermost? I mean, does he? Really? Well, you'll, you'll find out. I, t- I talked, uh, I guess, Sunday night, Saturday night. When was that? I don't remember when it was. I was talking about Betty White, you know, and, and she, in her one of her interviews about death, of course, she was asked about it because she was, uh, at that point, uh, quite elderly. And they asked her if she feared it. And she said, no, I don't, I don't fear death. Because my mother always told me that when you die, you find out the big secret. And, and the secret is what happens next. And she's right about that. What she's not right about is it's not a secret. It, it's it's full-blown. It's one of the most well-known things in the history of mankind. Jesus. He, it's what happens next. There is an alternative. I think you know what it is. We may touch on that. A little bit, but I'm really here to talk ultimately about Jesus um, and uh, the hope that we we have in Him, because it is a hope, and and it's real, and it's it's really all we've got, but this this life that we're living now. So, what about it? The resurrection. You know, if you read a little bit past these verses in John chapter 11, when it comes, when it talks about uh, Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes walking out. The dead man came out. It doesn't even refer to him as him. It's the dead man. That's what I'm called a lot of times. I got a call, I got a call from a, a college the other day, and they wanted to know if I would come and speak. I said, sure, I'll come and speak. I'd be happy to do it. I liked speaking to colleges and high schools and stuff like that. And, I, and they said, well, how do we advertise this? I said, I'll tell you what one college did. They put uh, signs up all over the campus that said, dead man talking. <laughs> and they just gave the room number and the time. The sad thing is that people knew who that was. I, uh, The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The next chapter heading, the next line on there is this. The plot to kill Jesus. Right after this this resurrection sequence with Lazarus, begins a sequence of the plot to kill Jesus. So it's already underway. They're already plotting to do this. And then in chapter 18, 
Jesus is arrested. And then if you go to chapter 19, he's sentenced to death and he dies and is buried. And then in chapter 20 of John's gospel, they find out the tomb is empty and Jesus appears to the disciples. So Lazarus resurrected now in the present hope and Jesus resurrected in the future hope later and Lord knows we need that my son and I used to travel speaking uh, all over the country and he went with me for eight years to most places Um, he didn't go to all the 50 states like I did he is now a federal attorney in Houston he figured going to law school was easier than traveling with me and uh, he did and became an attorney for Homeland Security. So he's doing that now. But Chris would be over there, the co-pilot and the navigator, and I used to call him the agitator, but he was over there, and he would look up ahead like the eyesight of an eagle, and he would see orange signs. And, And those orange signs meant construction ahead. And I can't tell you... We felt for a long time there that the whole world was under construction. I mean, every highway, you couldn't make any time. It was all, the traffic was backed up, and then you get on gravel. It was just, it was a nightmare. But if you drove long enough, sometimes it wasn't that far, you would see another sign that said, in construction. And occasionally, it would even say, after it ended, it said, thank you for your patience. (laughs) Which we did not have. It was kind of them to think that we did, but we didn't. I kind of feel like life is like that. You know, Jesus said right before he left, I go to prepare a place for you. And who better than a carpenter king to build us a better place? Many people, scholars, theologians, think that the reason Jesus hasn't returned is that heaven is still under construction. That they're finishing it. They're building it. It's under construction. I go to prepare a place for you. And, and then he says, and if I do, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. Well, you know. But tonight, I'm kind of calling you. I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to prepare for heaven. You say, well, I hope it's a long time from now. It may be. In, in an earthly sense, but it may not be. But it may be that you've kind of known the story for a long time and you're, you like the story and you care about the story, but there is a, is a possibility that you've never really prepared for heaven. It is a prepared place for prepared people. So I want to make sure that you are sure about this before you leave tonight. This is a different kind of service maybe than you're used to being in, but it's incumbent upon us to make sure that you know Because we want to see you there. We want to be together there. I will leave after the men's thing tomorrow and I will return back to Houston. And then hopefully we'll see each other again here. But maybe not. There will come a time when we won't be able to physically greet each other here. So our only option for fellowship, and oh my goodness I love having fellowship with you, is to be together in heaven. And there are no goodbyes there, only hellos. So that's why it's important tonight that we 
really talk about it, so I'm going to do it in very explicit terms about what it takes to be in heaven. I know we're under construction, but one day we'll come to the end of the construction and it'll be time. Heaven doesn't really save souls, it collects them. Jesus saves them. It's a collection point. My father's house, he said, are many rooms, are mansions. And so it's a real place that you can really go to and spend eternity. So, how did all this happen? I mean, what, what is the story? Well, to talk about how Jesus could bring good into the world, in a world that was in great turmoil in which he entered, and let's face it, is still in great turmoil today. We talked about it this morning. We've got to start at the beginning, as in, in the beginning. The Bible starts that way. God created a perfect world. And you may have always wondered how we got messed up. You know, you've heard the story of Adam and Eve and things, but think about this. God created a perfect world, and with this life that he created for humans in the Garden of Eden, God set only one boundary. Don't eat of one specific tree. Incidentally, when you get to heaven, you will eat of that tree. You know, it was the knowledge of good and evil, not in heaven. It's, 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 it's a heavenly tree in heaven. So you can eat all you want. Of course, you don't eat in heaven to stay alive. You eat in heaven for fellowship. That's the only purpose of eating in heaven. Thank goodness animals don't eat each other, and we don't eat them, and they don't eat us. It's, we eat for fellowship. So don't eat of this tree. Do remember now that he gave them full provision in the Garden of Eden, and his almighty presence was all around them all the time. And living within this boundary did not restrict them in any way, but enabled them to live to the absolute fullest in paradise. What an arrangement. What an incredible thing. How much he must have loved humans, the first two anyway, to put them there in this place with a bounty, an unbelievable amount of, of joy and provision. Their obedience, their obedience to God protected their relationship with him and the perfection that they lived in. But Pride got in the way. We're humans. Pride got in the way. They figured they could do this better than he did it. They decided to do what they wanted to do. And so they disobeyed their maker. And then they found themselves wandering in silence as he called out their names. I could just hear those names. He knows where they are, but he's calling them to him. They're hiding because they've disobeyed him. And because of their choice, sin entered into the world. Disobedience. Doing what God tells us not to do and not doing what he tells us to do. So it's both kinds. So that anything we do after that point, even a fraction that deviates from what God has planned for us and, the, and, and our creator wants us to do, is Causing a breach, causing a gulf between us and him. Uh, and the way to make things right with God, and there is a way, he made a way, was, even though it's hard for us to understand, 
the death of his perfect son. That was the way. Jesus said, I am the way. God planned a way for a relationship with him, and it began in Bethlehem. We just talked about it a few weeks ago. We just celebrated it a few weeks ago. Jesus arrived. Finally came time for the fulfillment of God's great redemption plan. And I don't know whether you noticed it or not, but God doesn't usually do stuff. He really doesn't do stuff the way that makes the most sense to us. Because he's God and we're not. You remember that scene in the, the, uh, the uh, sports movie, Rudy. Rudy. I'm uh, an alum of LSU. We just hired the Notre Dame coach for $100 million to coach LSU. You remember Rudy arrives at Notre Dame and he, he's got, a, he's got a, like a, a couple of bags. That's all he's got and he's there. And he wants to get into Notre Dame. And he, not only does he want to get into Notre Dame, he wants to play football at Notre Dame. And he's like five foot nothing, probably weighs 160 pounds, 150. Have you seen football players? You know, he he's just probably doesn't have a good chance. So he winds up at a, uh, a church where a lot of priests are sitting around. And so he approaches one of the, the priests and wants to know what the priest thinks he should do. And the priest listens to him. They're in church. He's got his bags. He showed up at church. So the priest automatically assumes he's talking about a, a vocation. Maybe he's here because God's called him to be a priest. And he listens to all this like you would listen to somebody. And then, then Rudy says, um, what do you think I should do? And he starts, the priest starts talking about becoming a priest. And Rudy says, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to go to Notre Dame and play football. You know, the priest has just spent quite a while listening to the story, and he knows now that this is not what he's here for. And, and the priest says this, um, I've learned only two things in 30 years of ministry. The first one is, there is a God. And the second one is, I'm not him. There is a God, and we're not him, even though we, we try to be sometimes. We, we make decisions that only we would decide without any consultation with God, without any thought about his rules or what he wants us to do because he knows what's best for us. He made us. So even here in this story, it didn't, it didn't turn out the way they thought it would because they were looking for a king. I mean, a king. They, they felt the only way they could overcome the subjugation of the Romans in this case, and let's face it, it was always somebody would, had their thumb on the, on the Jews. And so they're looking for deliverance. And in some ways, we still are. From the things that plague us here on the planet, the things that plague us, plague us here in the country, and the things that plague us here in, in Florida, we're looking for an answer to this and that and all the other things that we have trouble with, we're struggling with. So God did not show up the way they thought as a king. He didn't storm in the church with fire coming out of his robes. He, he didn't come as a king to overthrow leaders. He came after 400 years of silence, just for them, kind of a bolt out of the blue. 
And he was carried in the womb of a teenage girl. Is this the way a Messiah comes? Born in a stable, sheep, hay. This is not the way they would have imagined that a, uh, a Savior would come. Yet, that was the plan prepared by God. Before the Garden of Eden... Because God foreknew how this would all turn out. And his desire, listen closely, his desire was to meet us on our level. His desire is always us, no matter where we are. I, I hear people say, well, you know what? You don't know what I've done in my life, all the things I've committed. It, it's not the level of crimes or disobedience. It's... it's it's, it's, not, it's repentance for that, whatever that is. I mean, I spoke years ago in, the, in, in Angola, the, the state prison of Louisiana. It's in, the, it's in what's called the Florida parishes. I don't know if you know. That, that, north, that part of Louisiana is called, because at one time it was, north and east of the Mississippi River. If you look at the river, this, this up here in the corner where the Florida parishes, it just kept going all the way across what is now Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. Well, that's where it is, and it's in the bend of the Mississippi River, so the Mississippi River goes all the way around it. You're not getting out of there. If, it, if you get out, you're going to have to swim across the Mississippi River. So yeah, you don't have any escapes in Angola. I'm invited to speak in the Billy Graham Chapel. Probably seats 1,000, 1,200. And um, New Orleans Seminary has a branch on the campus of Angola Prison where professors come up from New Orleans and teach these inmates how to become pastors, uh, chaplains. And uh, they get a degree. I mean, some of them have Master of Divinity degrees in prison. And I was invited to speak. So the first two or three rows are chaplains and seminary students, even though they're inmates. And then the place was packed. Hey, over here to the side, they had a magnificent organ. I mean, magnificent. And uh, it, was, it was just astounding. And I found out that it's the George Beverly Shea organ. He donated it. A lot of people don't know, you know, he was always the one that was singing, but he was a very gifted musician. That was really his calling. And so he had lots of them. And so for some kind of anniversary, he was given this organ and he gave it to them. Billy Graham Chapel, George Beverly Shea organ. There was, a, there was an African-American man playing it and fell off of it two or three times because that's the kind of vigor he was playing this organ with. And then he had a choir back here that was singing. Of course, it's, these are all men. It's a men's prison. And so they invited me to speak. I was getting ready to go up on the platform, and uh, I was sitting like down here. I was getting ready to go up on the platform, and this guy leans over to me, and he says, isn't the choir good? And they were. And he says, you know, they're all murderers, all of them in the choir. It's a murderer's choir. Okay. And I thought to myself, and I'm, I, I apologize for this, but I thought to myself, and I'm going to stand with my back to them and speak. So you get the picture. I'm in the room, and, and one of the wardens has told me, Don, 
This is a special night because for the first time ever, we're actually putting this in closed circuit into death row. They, hardly, they don't ever get to watch anything. They're watching this. I thought, well, great, no pressure. I've got to preach to the guys in death row. So I got up and I did the testimony that you heard last night. Gave it everything I've got because, hey, listen, if anybody needed a new normal, they did. Because they were never going to be the same again. But I thought about that as I was kind of mounting the platform to speak. And I nodded my head at the murderer's choir. And they, they smiled back. They'll never get out. But one day they can get in. Because so many of them had truly trusted the Lord. They were going to heaven. You say, well, wait a minute, I, I haven't ever murdered anybody. Okay. It's, it's not the crime, it's the forgiveness. And he can forgive you anything, any, anything, except rejecting him. That's it. The only unforgivable sin is called, in the Bible, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which means the Spirit speaks to you like I'm praying that he will right now, and especially at the end of this service, and you ignore it. You turn it off. You're not listening to it. So the horse you rode in is not that important as how do you respond to the gospel. Okay? How do you, how do you respond to that? So his desire is always us. Now that Jesus had been born, God wanted to share the news, and we know what happened. We, we've had it on our front lawn and down in the, uh, the, the narthex of the church in so many cases. You know, we put a manger scene out there. I mean, we know what happened. Um, they were praying for uh, a deliverer, for a Messiah, and suddenly one night there in the fields, angels showed up in massive numbers and spoke to the shepherds. If you've been to the Holy Land, and so many of you have, you, we passed the shepherds. You see them out there in the field. I mean, they're still doing the same thing. They have a staff, the sheep are out there, and they're minding flock. That's what these guys were doing at nighttime. They were minding the flock and the angels show up and give them the good news. These men in the field were not looking for God, but he came looking for them and he's looking for you. Before you were born, he loved you and he loves you still and he wants you to be with him. So they weren't expecting God. He, he was expecting them. A couple of years later, I know we always put the, we put the shepherds and the, and the so-called kings together and that they were not there at the same time, of course. Probably a couple years later, actually, that what we call the wise men, we don't know how many there were. We think there were three because there are three gifts that were designated, but these were highly educated people. Secular researchers, they were not particularly religious people. They were studying the stars for signs, and God pursued them. They weren't pursuing him, but he pursued them. In fact, God arranged the stars in just such a way that they would arrive at a specific destination because he was calling them to his son, and they packed expensive gifts expecting to find a king. Instead, they found a child. 
but a child with the presence of God so firmly established in him that they gave him their gifts and they worshiped for the very first time. What a remarkable turn of events. That is the power of God. That's the power of his presence. It interrupts our normal and it invites us to come to him. So I don't know what your normal is tonight. You may just be flying high. Everything is wonderful in your life. I had an English secretary one time when I was in the television business. And she would say, her name was Janice Malk. And she would say, it's tickety-boo. Which I understood to mean very nice. Things are really going well. And maybe they are for you in an earthly sense. But the reality of it is, whatever your normal is, God will interrupt that. Including tonight. He'll interrupt it. So, Jesus ministered when he began his earthly ministry near and far. One of the things we talked about this morning is him ministering to one of his best friends. uh, Lazarus. In fact, he didn't just minister to him. He raised him from the dead. So he, he went everywhere. Lives were changed. Souls were healed. And after so much suffering in the world, so much silence in the world, hope was finally here. They had hope. Jesus was here. People loved him and followed him. He was heaven walking on earth. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to live during the time of Jesus? There? And see him walk by? What your response would have been to him? Would we believe? Would we not believe? We would wonder if he was out of his mind. What would would be our response to Jesus? We have the benefit of reading books about him and hearing about him that that are history, that are recorded. Here's what happened. They were there. They were in his presence. Some still rejected him. Some even killed him. So he was here. He was heaven on earth. But I must say to you that it was never the plan for that to go on. That's not why he came. So these people would be delighted in his presence. Sin's debt remained unpaid. It was unpaid. People needed a bridge between themselves and God. They needed a bridge. Jesus was that bridge. He was that payment. That's what he, he was here for, and his time had come. I just told you that right after Lazarus, it starts saying they were plotting against him. They started the plot. The things was going, were going on, and that's what's happening. A distrust among the people was growing, and the religious leaders who longed for control convinced, convinced the governing bodies that Jesus should be arrested, should be killed for nothing more than rumors. That's exactly what happened. He was accused, beaten, and sentenced to crucifixion. Only the death of the only son, the holy son, could cover mankind's sin in the eyes of a holy God. Only his death could build the bridge for you and you to return to the Father. And I'm talking to you. This is as personal as it gets. Knowing you, knowing what was at stake for you, and the cost to pardon you, he accepted every strike that should have been yours. 
The wages of sin is death. He carried every pound of the cross for you. He bore every nail piercing through his flesh for you. Jesus willingly chose separation and silence from his Father so that you would never know it. He took your place far from God so that you could take his place near to God. That's what he did. That's why he came. And that's why he left. But he's coming back. You can imagine how horrific this was. Soldiers did their worst, mocking him as he struggled for air. Jesus himself cried out to God. Now imagine this. This is one of the saddest spectacles in all of human history. The Son of God hanging on a cross, crying out to his Father. And there's only silence. His Father is turned away. He can't look at this. The sins of the world on his son. It's sin. He's holy. He turns away. He allows it to happen. Finally, Jesus surrenders his last breath. It is done. He is dead. Three days of silence after they pulled his broken body from the blood-stained wood and buried him, his friends hid. His enemies celebrated. If the story had ended with him and his body in the grave, that's it. That's it. That's the story. This is where it ends. Sin really did win. And we are left with nothing but a nice-sounding story in a book. That's all. That's all there is. No hope of ever having a relationship with God the Father. It's over. No hope of peace. No hope of ever knowing the presence of God, being in his presence. Listen closely if you don't hear anything else I say. Christ died the death that you and I deserved. But praise God, he wasn't done. Three days of silence and two silent nights led to the very ground shaking a stone away from an empty tomb. Just like Lazarus. Hope now, hope later. It's our blessed hope. It's our opportunity. It's our chance. We lose people here. I've talked to many people uh, just in these last two days who have lost loved ones even since the last time I saw them. Many. And, and it's heartbreaking, and my heart goes out to them. I, I told you, I think this morning, my, I buried my mother a year ago right now. Right now. So, you know, it, it's, it's not the good part of life. Sometimes it's good to see people suffer no more. 
And I understand that, but it doesn't mean they're here for you to hug them anymore. It doesn't mean that you can call them up and talk about that game anymore. It doesn't mean a lot of things. I always say, and I mean it from the depth of my spirit, I'm sorry for your temporary separation from your husband. It is real, but it will not last. When I, I know they're prepared, they were ready. They just weren't planning to die that day. Isn't it amazing when you go in the grocery store and you see that magazine with Betty White's face on the cover that was supposed to be released or on her 100th birthday? She died at 99, just a couple of weeks short of the birthday. All the human plans we can possibly imagine don't amount to a hill of beans when it comes down to what's really going to happen. So you have to be ready all the time, folks, really. And that's why Jesus came. It's urgent. I mean, it's urgent. It's, it's just, we just don't know. We shouldn't be grieving when that happens as somebody who has no hope. That's what the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Do not grieve as those with no hope. Go to a funeral home. I know we don't be, we're not able to do that very much anymore because of COVID. But I've done hundreds of funerals. And I, I, can, I can promise you, as God is my witness, I could go in a funeral home and I can walk down the row of staterooms in the funeral home where people are in there sometimes with a casket and a body in it. And I could tell you which ones are Christians and which ones aren't. Not by what they're physically doing, but their faces, their conversations, the way they carry themselves. Are they not all sad, in a, in a manner of speaking? Yes, they've lost a loved one. Are they all without hope? <laughs> no. A lot of them know that this body, this container in this casket, is only the shell of the person they loved before. And that that body will someday be reunited with that person. And that great getting up morning. So there is hope. So you're really only one of two people. You're either the one that died or you're the one who cares about the one who died. And so if you're the one that's still here, then you better be ready and prepared for what happens there. I'm not... I'm not I'm not fussing at anybody. I'm just telling you that we have to. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. That's all we got. When it gets right down to it, 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 it you know, death was not part of the original plan. We really brought it on ourselves with our disobedience. But God has made a way. It, he's made a way for us to be there. And he wants us to be there. I mean, if you send your son to die for humans, you must love humans a lot course. My son was in the ROTC, the one that's a lawyer for a long time. I mean, he became a, a colonel, which I think is about the highest you can get in, you know, ROTC, Reserve Officer Training. Until he went for his final, his final checkup, his final thing before they induct you as, you know, in, into uh, military school. And he's had asthma all his life. Oh, my goodness. How many times have we rushed that kid when he was little to an emergency room because he couldn't catch his breath? Horrifying. One of the scariest things. 
you know, he's got two little boys now, and they have their own share of illnesses. And I, I'm not really happy that they do. I really don't. But, you know, it, it is amazing how life kind of comes around in full circle. You know, and you're listening to what they're talking. Well, oh, my son, you know, Lachlan is just, and I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the times that I was sitting in an emergency room with him. Chris went for his final exam, and they determined that the, determined that the, 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 the illness, asthma, was so, it was so uh, extensive in him that he could not be inducted into service after spending four years getting ready for it. What a disappointment it was. But I have to tell you, and he, I, he eventually, I eventually told him, I was glad. I was a military kid. I polished boots and brass for the first 13 years of my life. I saw that life. I saw, us, I saw my dad walk in and say, everybody get together. We knew what that meant. We're going to be transferred again. No friends. No permanent ones. I never went to the same school more than a year. So it, it wasn't a life I hoped for him, but I'll tell you the worst. The letters I used to get my, from my dad from Vietnam and Korea and places like that, knowing every time that the lat letter may be the last one until we get the letter. So I didn't want him to do that. I didn't want my son in harm's way like that, any of my children. What does that say? Well, it doesn't say that people are, you know, we can release our kids and we need to be people, we need to have people in the military. It just means I don't want to lose him. Well, God lost his only son, sacrificed on our behalf. Does that tell you about the depth of his love for us? You know, you, you, you roll in here a barrel of Pure distilled water. Absolutely 100% certified pure water. And then if I were to take an eyedropper and open the top of the barrel of pure water and I were to drop one drop of raw sewage into the water and you saw me do it and you knew what it was, most of us would not take a drink out of that water even though it may be so diluted that it couldn't possibly harm us, but it might. God sees sin that way. You may be good. You may be one of the best people on the planet in terms of your morality and the things that you're doing, but that drop of sin that is in you, it, it, it spoils the, the water. It's it's, it would keep you out. You say, well, God's really strict. Oh, yeah. Can he be? He made us. So, yes, it's his choice. We don't have to understand it. If you only did things you understood, you probably wouldn't do very much. <laughs> you know, faith is how we move on most things. We just do them by faith. You're going to push the brake out there at the stop sign and hope the other people at the four-way stop do the same thing. We just live by faith all the time. Now, is it always rewarded? No. But in this case, it will be rewarded. It will be. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground 
is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. I've staked my life on it. I've staked eternity on it. And I got run over by a truck and killed. And I saw it. It's the most real thing I've ever experienced. So, are you ready for heaven? I explained to you what happened in a nut, just kind of a little nutshell. How it happened, why it happened. The whole scenario of God and his intentions. So I have to say to you that not only did Christ choose your death on the cross, but he forever declared victory through a world-changing resurrection. Yes, Lazarus was resurrected in that moment. I mean, in that moment that he showed up at the house and he did it. Jesus was resurrected after his crucifixion. Was here and then he went there, preparing us a better place. You know, there is goodness in where you are right now. I said, you know, that we've got so many good people, but we are flawed. We do disobey God. There's goodness in where you are right now, but you know why there's goodness in where you are? Because God is where you are right now. Really, where you are, he's certainly where we are. He's been sowing redemption into your story since the Garden of Eden. His presence is in a pandemic. His presence is in loneliness. His presence is in silence. And his presence is here. Told you this morning that I'm thankful for these last couple of years. That's kind of a radical statement. I understand that because of what's happened. And but this is why. This is why. Because I needed a friend during this time. I've known my father because I needed provision. I've known my provider because I needed peace during this time. I've known my savior all the way down the line. Even in these last two years, his presence brought unexplainable goodness. It hasn't always been what I wanted and it hasn't always been on the timetable that I prayed for, but his presence has surrounded me with goodness even still. And I have to say this to you. If you haven't experienced him, I invite you now. If you're walking through silence now, you are welcome tonight. You're wanted and you're invited by your father calling your name tonight. Hope later. Later will come sooner than you think. So, maybe you've been a member of a church for 48 years. Maybe everybody believes that you have committed yourself to Christ. Maybe you love Jesus. You know all about him. But it involves a decision to ask him to forgive you for your sins. And appropriate what he did on the cross. Invite him into your life. And make a reservation in heaven. And he said he will be faithful to take you there. That's why he died here. For all the world to see. So we do love you here. 
honestly, we're so glad you're here, but we want to love you there. And that's why we had this service tonight. We are inviting people in to the kingdom of God. We're all sinners saved by grace. The truth is we're all standing in front of a murderer's choir and they are saved by grace too. And if he can save them, he can save you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for a church that does stuff like this. We are grateful for the leadership and the, and the vision that is cast that says we want to bring hope to our community. We want to give them hope in the present. We want to meet their needs. We want to minister to them. But ultimately, Lord, as a church, we want to see people in heaven someday. Many people have passed through the doors of this church over the years. Many of them are not here anymore. And it's a stark reminder of how quickly life can pass. But life never passes. In heaven, it's eternal. It goes on forever. It's a celebration. They don't even have to sleep there because they're so happy to be there. And they're perfect. All the things that harm us here, all the things that scar us here on the inside and out, no longer there. We'll get there and we won't even remember the absences that we experienced here. We won't remember that we were separated here. That's not a heavenly thought. So we'll begin eternity together there. No more night, no more darkness, eternity. In the presence of God. Lord, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will move in this place, down each aisle, and speak to us. Everyone can make a decision in the room tonight. Really? Everyone? Yes. Some of you who've been Christians a long time need to turn up the burners on your witness. You need to invite people to church that aren't coming. You need to encourage folks. You need to tell them about Jesus. You need to get some Bibles that you just keep handy and give them out when you see somebody who doesn't have one. You need to live a faithful Christian life in front of everyone else so they'll know what a Christian is and want to be one too. So God help you do that. I pray that you make that commitment tonight. And it could change this church, really. Change this community. And then there are those who truly haven't made the decision. The Bible says we can know that we are saved. We can know it. So here's, here's the proposition. If you don't know for sure that you are a, a saved, redeemed believer, you've made that decision, you've asked Christ to save you, save you, then you can know it. And the Bible is very clear. We can know it certainly. If you don't know it certainly, then you can make that decision tonight. In a moment, some leaders of the church, pastors, they'll be down here at the front which means that if you come down and talk to them, you can tell them whatever you want. You can ask them whatever question you want. You can ask for prayer. You can ask for clarification. Whatever God's telling you to do. You say, do I, do I have to go down there? I could just say it like this. If Christ can go to the cross, you can walk down to the front of a church and share your heart. You'll be glad you did afterwards, I promise you. 
And we'll rejoice with you because we're happy that you've decided. And now we all know where we're going to spend eternity. Whatever's on your heart, really, whether it's a salvation decision or something that you really need to clarify, then when we stand in a few moments and the music begins, just make your way down. Say, well, I'm not used to that. It's okay. You can plow some new ground. We'd be happy to talk to you and pray for you and love on you. So whatever God's telling you to do, this is an invitation. I said this morning that, you know, a governor pardoned a guy that was convicted of murder and sentenced to death, and he didn't want it. Went all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, you can't force somebody to accept a pardon. Grace. And we can't, and we will not. But we can invite you, and that is exactly what this is. So speak to us, Holy, Holy Spirit. Touch our hearts and lead us. Who be first? We pray for our harvest tonight. We want some new names written down in glory. And we want to give the angels something to sing about tonight. In that book of life, Holy Spirit, do your work. In Jesus' name.